Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. From all over, and it's so great to have y'all in front of me. It's really been um, a kind of home leave of sorts on this book tour, just being able to see so many people that I love so much, um, and I really, really appreciate it. So, uh, before I start reading, I just wanted to say a couple words about the novel. Uh, it's about an American expat family that moves around the world according to the whims of the father, Chris's company, with stops in Germany, England, China, Singapore, and the U.S. Um, and if that sounds a little familiar with my bio, it's true. It's uh, <laughs> loosely autobiographical, 99% uh, fiction. Uh, but I have drawn on all the different places that my family lived um, to, to write this. And I see some faces from Singapore in the audience too, and so I know that you guys share that experience. And um, as the Pearsons know, home leave refers to the trip uh, that expatriates take back home uh, every summer. So in this family's case, it's to the US. But I chose it as a title because I love the painful proximity of those two words together, home and leave and how it echoes the feeling of all those trips and those moves that I experienced as a kid, how you felt um, like it was time to leave just as soon as you sometimes felt like you were home. Um, and so that juxtaposition all the time. And so tonight I'll be reading from a chapter uh, that occurs about two-thirds of the way through the novel. And in this chapter, the Kriegsteins, the family, are celebrating Christmas in Thailand, which is just a short journey from Singapore where the family's based. However, this trip is coming a mere four months after tragedy has struck the Kriegsteins, when Sophie, the younger daughter, has suddenly died of an undetected heart condition at 13, leaving the other three family members, Chris, the father, Elise, the mother, and uh, Leah, Sophie's 15-year-old older sister, now an only child, in deep shock. In this chapter excerpt, the three Kriegsteins attempt to soothe their grief in different ways, none of which are particularly wholesome or halfway effective. And um, yeah, this chapter begins from Elise's point of view, the mom. I'll be home for Christmas. Koh Samui, Thailand, December 1996. Sophie never would have gone for it. Thailand? For Christmas? It's way too hot there. She would have protested and would have kept on protesting until she got her way. She was a traditionalist. She wanted burgers on the 4th of July and a chill in the air on Christmas Eve. That's one reason we wound up here on Koh Samui on December 21st, to get as far away from her as possible. 
Of course. As soon as our plane touched down, despite the bamboo flute playing in the airport arrivals lounge and the Rambutan welcome drink when we showed up at the Four Seasons, it was obvious that she was just as present, by which I mean painfully absent, as she had been in Singapore, if not more so. I could see it in the slouch in Leah's shoulders, the forced smile in Chris's face, the tightness in my own voice. You could nod smugly and say, of course, what did you expect? That running away to a tropical paradise would solve everything? And to that I would say, it was worth a shot. After eight moves and 18 years of marriage, Chris and I had gotten pretty good at getting out of, getting out of Dodge when the going got tough, but it had never been this tough. In the breezy, rattan-flavored lobby of the Four Seasons, I finished my welcome drink and downed another. Didn't say a thing when Leah went for the non-kids cocktail. Cheers. You lose your sister at 15, you're automatically older than 21 in my book. Plus, I didn't have the energy to oppose her. If a little rum helped her lose that look of horror, even for five minutes, it was worth it. The three of us drifted down to the pool area as porters in glimmering tie dress spirited away the luggage. I gave them a pained, sorry it's so heavy, smile as Chris gave them a tip. I wondered how we appeared to the other vacationers lounging on deck chairs beside the infinity pool, reading various European issues of Vogue. They regarded us furtively behind sunglasses and large straw hats. Americans, they probably thought, taking in Chris's blinding white sneakers. Spoiled single child, they might have decided next, regarding Leah's black mood. And me? Professional expat wife, logging my French manicure, the dark tan I'd gotten walking around the American school track with Jeanette Lawless, another southerner, a middle school math teacher, and my latest best girlfriend, as I tried to keep an eye on Leah at soccer practice, trying to look like I was absorbed in what Jeanette was saying about her son's ADHD. Since losing Sophie four months ago, I'd experienced an urge that I hadn't felt since Leah was a newborn to keep my eldest close. It was driving Leah crazy, I could tell. Even now, as she cleared her throat and told us that she was going on a walk and drifted off, her lanky frame far too lanky these days, I wanted to call her back, rock her to sleep, scream that she couldn't leave us now too. As anyone who's had a teenager knows, that was the one thing I wasn't supposed to do. Yet in between impulses to suffocate Leah and burrow into Chris like a baby marsupial, I also badly wanted to do the opposite. I wanted to run away from both of them. Specifically with Bernard Pinker. I know, I know, a stupid name. And a horribly stupid idea. How on earth could anyone even consider nursing a crush after losing their daughter? In many ways, Chris and I had grown kinder and more tender to each other in the months since Sophie's death than we had in years. And yet, Bernard Pinker was the one reason I wanted to get up in the morning. I'd met him at the new faculty orientation when I'd begun teaching at the American School, where he left, led an afternoon session on stress management. Everyone at the Singapore American School was surprised that I hadn't quit my teaching job after returning to Singapore from Sophie's funeral in the States. The high school principal tried to talk me out of coming back. But what was I going to do at home all day? Start a mahjong club? Harmonize with the clucking geckos? Build a Buddhist shrine to Sophie with her soccer cleats and favorite Redwall books? Develop a full-blown alcohol and drug addiction? No thanks. I was back in school a week after we came back from the States. Same as Leah. Bernard was a high school counselor, not Leah's, thank God, and the only colleague who didn't duck his head when he saw me in the teacher's lounge or tell me that Sophie was an angel. 
Bernard was a British, British atheist who believed only in Lacan. Bernard was thin and frail, as though he'd had a childhood illness. He hadn't. Bernard loved art house movies. Bernard was also spending Christmas in Koh Samui, staying at the same hotel with his ratty wife, Rebecca, who worked for BP, or British Pollution, as Bernard called it. I hadn't yet divulged my thing for Bernard to Jeanette, but I knew what she would say. It was laughingly obvious, wasn't it? I was using Bernard as an escape from my grief, just as we had fled to a Thai island to try to shake Singapore's sadness. But the difference with Bernard was that it worked. Not that I didn't feel sad about Sophie and his presence, but I didn't have to fight it. We'd started having lunch together sometimes, since we had the same hour free on Tuesdays and Thursdays. One of those first lunches, when my crush was just a dim, nascent affection, I'd burst into tears out of nowhere. The cafeteria was serving roti chanai, a dish that Sophie had hated. A smile came to my lips, imagining Sophie's exaggerated grimace at the fried pita and curry, and then the smile froze as I remembered that Sophie was no longer around to hate roti chanai. It didn't make sense. It wasn't as though it had been her favorite food, a dish that prompted a bittersweet memory of her enjoying it at a restaurant. The pain stemmed from the fact that I had forgotten, for a second, that she was gone. I numbly paid for my kwetiao and walked straight through the cafeteria doors instead of taking a left into the teacher's lounge. I headed downstairs, holding my tray, nodding to the kids who yelled, hey, Mrs. Kriegstein. I walked to the bleachers bordering the soccer field, put down my lunch tray, and sobbed. Bernard had followed me. He quietly sat beside me on the metal bleachers. He didn't tell me about his mother's death or his father's cancer. He didn't tell me that Sophie had lived a full life or describe her smile to me as though I hadn't seen it before. He just sat there. Eventually, when I'd stopped crying, I told him about the roti chanai, and he gave my hand a squeeze, and I gave a tiny squeeze back, and then we let go and stood up and walked around the soccer field where Sophie had collapsed. He was just a good friend. A good friend I put on makeup for. A good friend whose presence made my heart race when he gave me a wave across the school parking lot. A good friend I imagined at night, lying next to Chris. Get some water real quick. So now it goes to um, Chris's perspective, but I'm not going to do a deep male voice. <laughs> it didn't go over well the last time. Just kidding. Um, I had set my alarm for 6 for a 7 a.m. tea time. I didn't have anyone to play with. Elise hated golf, but I didn't care. I'd never been as good at golf as the other sports I'd played in high school and college, basketball and baseball, so I always looked forward to nine holes alone without anyone to witness my mistakes. The hotel breakfast area was an open-air affair covered with a traditional Thai, thai, ugh, traditional thai thatched roof. It's impossible to say out loud. It was practically empty, just a couple of cute yoga moms who were getting in their mango shakes and snake fruit before classes on the veranda overlooking the bay. I could hear from their broad accents that they were Americans, Midwesterners if I had to bet. So I said good morning to them, and they smiled back cheerfully with that extra kindness that you grant a compatriot in a foreign country. They hunched together as I walked to my table, and I overheard them negatively comparing their husband's physiques to my own. I smiled to myself, stood a little taller. I considered myself lucky. 
As my colleagues and college roommates' bellies had ballooned, I had stayed slim, thanks to my jeans and my daily 20-minute workouts, which I stuck to regardless of where I was. Moscow, Abu Dhabi, Buenos Aires. The only day I had missed for the last 10 years had been the morning after Sophie died, when I could barely have told you my own name. But the following morning, I was back at it. From the look Elise gave me, when she saw me doing push-ups in the bedroom, I could tell she considered it callous, crude. She didn't understand that I had to hold on to something. She and Leah had the luxury of falling apart. I, for all of our sakes, did not. Both Elise and I had aged well. People told us all the time that we looked like we were in our 30s, when we were both in our early 40s. Nobody had said that in the last four months, of course. You don't comment on how fresh the bereaved look. Elise looked different, I thought, although it wasn't what you'd expect. She didn't have baggy eyes and hadn't gained or lost weight. If anything, she seemed more vigilant, more vivacious, although it had a dangerous edge to it in my mind. The way her eyes shone looked unhinged, and she was hardly sleeping. She came to bed after me and was often up before I woke. I felt guilty about how well-rested I was, by contrast. How could a PowerPoint presentation I'd been assigned at the annual board meeting last year have made me lose more sleep than my younger daughter's death? I had to wait on a Japanese couple to tee off, and then it was just me and the smell of freshly cut grass. It was a gorgeous course. Kosmoi gets insufferably hot in the afternoon, but right now the temperature was perfect. Below, to my left, the sea sparkled like crest toothpaste, and to the right of the driving range, lime green rice paddies glowed. I missed Sophie. Out here, alone, it was a pure missing, much different than the convoluted sadness and anger I felt when I was with Leah and Elise. I knew that wasn't right, that I should be spending more time with those two now than I ever had, that Sophie's sudden departure should make me appreciate them more. It did, in some ways. But I'd lost my buddy. I'd never explicitly wanted a son, unlike some of my guy friends, but I admit that I had been pleased and proud when it turned out that Sophie had an affinity for math and science, that she excelled in sports, that she was desperate to know how everything worked. What made a car engine run? What made an airplane lift off the runway? One of my favorite memories with her was buying a physics kit in Atlanta. She couldn't have been older than nine. And wiring up a light bulb, watching her excitement when we finally got the circuits correct. All of that was gone now. Sir, you going now? A Thai caddy honked the golf cart, horn behind me. I'd been standing next to the ball for some minutes, and a group of Italians were waiting impatiently. I hit horribly, as I always do when strangers are watching, and got on my cart to chase the ball down. I was relieved to feel tears at the back of my eyes. Back to Elise. I lay just inches from Bernard, my body tingling. We were discussing the weather in England, of all things. A topic fit for two Jane Austen characters chatting chastely in the parlor. It was our second day in Kosamui, and circumstances had conspired such that he and I were alone together on the beach. Rebecca the Rat was getting a mud massage. Leah was off on one of her punishing morning runs. Chris was golfing. I was sprawled out on one of the hotel's generous terry cloth beach towels, abandoned by my family members, feeling like a woman in one of those Dove Bar ads on the cusp of indulgence. Go on, you deserve it. The fact that I had not invented an excuse to seek out Bernard, that I had simply been on the beach by myself, sulking when he'd shown up, seemed to exempt me from any ill doing. He was just keeping me company, and we were talking about the weather, for God's sake. 
How much more G-rated could you get? But the feverish feeling I had, lying next to his towel, was not harmless at all. Sleety and slushy, he was saying. I remember that, I said, but I always felt that the Brits, Brits did Christmas quite tastefully. I never said things like quite tastefully to anyone else. I hated how chameleon-like I'd become, how I immediately took on a draw with Jeanette, spoke clipped singlish with our gardener, and faux British now with Bernard. It was subconscious, which made it all the more impossible to avoid. Where had my own voice gone? The only voice I had managed to hold on to through all our moves was my singing voice. But when did I sing? In the car, on walks alone in Singapore's botanic gardens when there was no one in sight. It had been suggested when I was a girl and even later during the Jericho years in college, that's uh, Elise's Christian rock band that she was in, that I could have made a career out of my clear soprano. That's what, mom, that's what mama had wanted more than anything I knew. She had always been pleased with my sister Ivy's singing success, but equally frightened of it too, like we all were. I suppose she trusted that I would remain just as well-behaved and boring were I to rock it to stardom as I had been in the church choir, a thought I'd always found incredibly depressing, largely because it was probably true. Bernard was nodding. As always with him, my inner monologue had spilled out. Sing something, he suggested. No, no, I was already beginning to blush. Please, another time. I'm not going to let you forget that. This partial promise of another meeting, where something intimate would be revealed, seemed to simultaneously terrify and calm both of us, and we fell silent. I knew we should move to the shade, what with skin cancer and the hole in the ozone layer, but I didn't want to. In Singapore, the unrelenting tropical glare felt like a hindrance, another foreign obstacle. But here, in Koh Samui, with nothing to do but bask in it, no groceries to haul across the parking lot, no soccer games to watch, it felt good to burn a little. A hot Christmas reminds me of home, I told Bernard, returning to safer ground. Not hot like this, but I can remember a couple of Christmases in Mississippi, where we didn't even need to wear jackets outside. And some years, we would go down to my grandmother's for Christmas in Florida. So in that sense, Kosmui feels just about right. I'm writing a poem about the bizarre feeling of Christmas here, the disjuncture, Bernard said. Sound of carols interrupted by parrots, sand castles instead of snowmen. I didn't like it when Bernard talked about his poetry. It sounded desperate to me. I preferred him as a startlingly articulate guidance counselor with a formidable vocabulary, not an amateur bard. This past semester, he had even taught a creative writing class after school, which Leah had made fun of at dinner once. He writes poems, too, along with the students and reads them out loud. Can you imagine? Leah had gasped. David told me that one was about Bernard's mother and how she had once caught him. That's enough, I'd said. I had secretly been relieved that Leah had shunned the class. I harbored a terror that he might fall in love with my younger version. But Leah hated any kind of creative writing. She liked facts. On Sunday mornings, she and Chris devoured the Herald Tribune and then debated the latest current events. My own views were dismissed as sentimental. I just wanted to touch him. It was torture to be freed from the school grounds, to spend time together on what was arguably one of the world's most romantic islands, and to remain politely platonic. As if to reinforce this fact, Rebecca the rat bounded up to us, all ribs and bad teeth. Elise, what a lovely surprise, she said, balancing an enormous plate of fish and chips. 
She spread her blanket next to mine and chattered on about her fabulous massage. I must give you the name of the masseuse, she gushed, and offered us fries. She seemed utterly unthreatened by my presence, which I found insulting. Ten minutes later, Chris and Leah showed up. Chris shook hands with Bernard in a stiff, business-like manner and then talked rising commodity prices with, Re prices with Rebecca before pointing down the beach where he and Leah had laid down their towels. We're going to jump in, he said. Leah hadn't even come over to us. She was already in the water, body surfing. I had a sudden urge to be with them, with her. I was grateful for it. I'll leave you two alone, I said. I need to cool off. Cool off? As soon as I said it, I kicked myself inwardly. Why was I talking like I was on Baywatch? <laughs> See you later, Bernard said. We should all do dinner one of these nights, Rebecca suggested, mercifully, so I didn't have to. Sounds great. I'll check in with those two and give you a call. Bernard gave me a smile and a wave, one that felt so private and so close that I walked away wrapped in it, dazed. It wasn't until I laid my towel next to Leah's and Chris's that it hit me, like a kick in the stomach. How badly I wanted Sophie's hand now, how much I still expected her to be here, to run with me into the waves, to laugh at their cold slap. Back to Chris. I hadn't always minded losing basketball games back at Cheriton High in UGA. If we were better than the other team, sure, losing was embarrassing. If it was a close game and we couldn't sink enough shots in the last five minutes, I'd be pissed along with everyone else. But a game where the other team was obviously better was a different story. I wasn't one of those guys who came in the locker room afterwards and started kicking things. I almost liked those clear-cut losses because the outcome was assured from the beginning. Not that I didn't try. I ran as hard as anyone out there. It wasn't in my German genes to slack off. But to humbly accept your fate at the buzzer, your inevitable failure, I didn't mind it. I felt something akin to that now with Bernard Pinker. Of course, on the face of it, most would agree that I was the superior male specimen. More attractive, taller, in better shape, without Bernard's nervous tick of playing the piano on the table when he got agitated. But that is also to say, I lacked Bernard's adorable eccentricities, or at least any eccentricities that were easy, easily recognizable. Nobody knew that I often shampooed twice in the shower, for example. But even that habit wasn't fascinating. It was just silly and wasteful. I always felt like showers went by too fast. I didn't want to start using conditioner, too feminine, but I felt like I deserved a long shower. Standing under hot water doing nothing felt like wasting time, hence the double shampoo. Every now and then Elise would point it out on the rare occasions we showered together. I always pretended I'd forgotten that I'd shampooed already. But I did not have a British accent, I did not have 1,000 Monty Python scenes at the ready to reenact, and I was not the opposite of myself. It was painfully obvious to me that Elise was attracted to Bernard, in large part because he represented everything I was not. On a rational level, I didn't mind. I could even sympathize. After 18 years of marriage, you start to gravitate towards something different. In my case, it seemed to be effusive Latin types. So, with Bernard, I decided to just let it happen. I saw it as a foregone conclusion, and I'll admit, it was a good excuse for me to tune out even more. Elise was the one who had insisted we needed this vacation together, the three of us. So if she wanted to spend it drooling over some balding community theater type, more power to her. Took her off my hands. Yet even thinking such a thing felt cruel and lazy, something I've never been. 
I could tell that Elise was waiting for me to intervene as she chatted about Bernard getting dressed for dinner, as she informed me that the two of them were going on a walk, and later as she filled me in on the hilarious things Bernard had said on the walk. But I didn't have the fight in me. I could see her slipping away, and I wished her bon voyage. Then came Christmas Eve, the night we all had dinner together at the hotel. Halfway through the meal, we were all fairly tipsy. Rebecca left soon afterwards to do something quintessentially boring and British, like watch the Vienna Boys Choir sing Silent Night in her hotel room. Leo was drinking wine like it was Gatorade, while Bernard and Elise were giggling over something the Spanish teacher had said at the prin to the principal at the faculty Christmas party, leaving me responsible for refilling Leah's water and making secret signs to the waiter to skip my daughter's wine glass. Then Leah got up from the table, swaying a little, and told us she was going to bed. I don't want to catch Santa Claus in the act, she said. If that happens, you don't get any presents. It sounded like a veiled accusation, but we all laughed obediently. She wasn't going to bed, I could tell. If Elise noticed, she didn't say anything. Think she's all right? I asked Elise 15 minutes later. I don't know, honey, Elise said. I hope so. <laughs> Chris. Bernard leaned in, his lips all ruddy and purple from the Malbec, like he'd been making out with a packet of grape Skittles. Oh, I would give us some space. Not that I have a teenager, but from what my students tell me, I think kids this age know what's good for them more than we give them credit for. Elise nodded emphatically. Cheers, she said, to giving them credit. She lifted her glass. Give me a break. I pulled back my chair. Well, you two can stay here, but I'm going to check on her, I said, ignoring their hovering glasses. As I walked away, I heard the crystal clink. For some reason, I took my wine glass with me and crossed the lobby as though it were my living room. Up on the fifth floor, I removed my key card and opened the door. We were in a suite, but Leah had her own room. I tapped on the door. Leah? Nothing. I opened it hesitantly. I'd never been an intrusive parent, and I didn't like reversing that precedent now. But then again, I wasn't going to ignore my niggling nervousness. I flipped on the switch. As I had suspected, the bed was empty. No note, of course. I pondered my options. I didn't feel like enlisting Bernard's help, or putting up with his and Elise's conspiratorial smirks. I would do a quick search myself, I decided. What would I do if I was her age? Was she at one of the other bars? Had she met a boy? The last thing I wanted to do was find my daughter making out with some pimply Belgian teenager behind tropical ferns. I put my wine glass down, changed into sneakers, and began the search. A quick half-hour sweep of the hotel grounds revealed nothing. She wasn't by the pool, the bar, or the garden that stretched to the end of the cliff, overlooking the bay. I checked my watch. 10.30. Maybe she was in the hot tub, I thought. They had separate spa areas for men and women in the locker rooms of the gym. Maybe she'd gone there to relax. But how was I going to check? Ask a female hotel staff person to run in? I figured I'd figure it out once I got down there. That's where I found her. Not in the locker room, but in the gym itself, a possibility that had never occurred to me. She was on the treadmill, running fast, on a steep incline. I walked over and pressed the emergency stop button. She stumbled a little as the treadmill suddenly slowed, and she whirled around. I had never seen such a raw wreck of feeling on a person's face. Ever since Sophie died, aside from the occasional panic attack or violent outburst in therapy, which I had always let Elise or the therapist handle, Leah had remained remo removed, distant, numb.
Right now she looked humiliated, furious, and caught. Her face, which should have been red from the exercise, looked frighteningly pale, like she was about to pass out. Just thought I'd get in a run so I could sleep better, she said between gasps of air, trying to sound casual. Elise had mentioned Leah's over-exercising to me, but I'd always dismissed it. I'd actually taken pride in the idea that Leah was just as committed to being in shape for her soccer season as I'd always been for basketball. But this was something different. I steered her to one of the weight machine benches and sat her down. She was shaking. I saw for the first time in the garish light of the gym how skinny she'd grown in the last few months. I went to the cooler and got her a cup of water. She downed it, and I retrieved another one. I wished it was that simple, that I could just keep bringing her cups of water until she was hydrated, until she was no longer hurting. Why don't we take a stroll, I finally suggested, once her breath had evened out. It sounded corny, even to me. But she nodded. We skirted the restaurant and walked down the path to the bay, lit now by flaming torches. There were honeymooners and swooning gay couples. I hoped it didn't look like Leah was my underage girlfriend. I glanced at her. Her face was, once again, set, stony, numb. All evidence of the molten emotion from the gym vanished. You've got to go easy on yourself, Leah, I finally said. Don't go overboard. She nodded. You want to sit? She shrugged. We sat. The sand was surprisingly cold. I couldn't stay there, she finally said. Where? At that table with Mom and Mr. Pinker? And you just sitting there like, I don't know, some saddled dog. I'd never felt like hitting my daughters, but at Leah's words, I had to struggle not to smack her. Some saddled dog, I said, my voice strange and shaking. Yeah, just letting her go for it. Just letting this ugly, stupid British dude flirt with her the whole night while you order more rice. Disgusting. That's why I left. That's why I went for a run, to try to get all of you guys out of my mind. You have no idea what it's like, I said. You're so spoiled. As the words came out, I was already willing them back. Screw you, she said, and glared at the ocean, like she hated it, too. She had never come close to cursing at me before now, and I was overwhelmed by the injustice of it. I didn't trust myself to speak. I stood instead and, at her unrepentant silence, walked away and left her there. Senseless, I knew, not good parenting. What had been the point of the entire exercise? To go find her, remove her from danger, and then leave her there alone on the beach? But I was angry. I never got angry, and I was angry. I marched up the path back to the hotel. I looked back and saw Leah standing there, a sad little statue. Obscurely, Bernard's words comforted me, and I believed them in that second, maybe because it was convenient. Kids know what's good for them. Should have left her in the gym in the first place, I thought. Let her run it out. I went to the restaurant. Elise and Bernard were still sitting there, like idiots, listening to a crappy Filipino band play Rocking Around the Christmas Tree. I strode over to them. Everything okay, Chris? Bernard said. Shut up, I said. Come on, Elise. What do you mean, come on? I mean, come on, enough. She sat there, her arms crossed. This wasn't going exactly as I'd pictured, which had involved punching, punching Bernard and Elise melting into my arms, whispering that she was sorry. Where's Leah? Elise asked. Is she in bed? No, I said, taking near pleasure in the worry that came over Elise's face now. She was in the gym, running, looking like she was about to collapse. Elise looked as horror-struck as I'd hoped. And now? She's on the beach. 
That was a bit harder to explain. <laughs> Alone? I nodded. Elise rose swiftly, throwing me an appalled look for abandoning our daughter, and headed towards the path to the beach. Bernard and I maintained an awkward silence until he asked if I wanted to get a scotch at the bar. Somehow, in light of everything else that had gone down, it seemed like the fitting thing to do. Okay, last section, just going to get some more. Back to Elise. I followed the path down to the beach where I quickly spotted Leah. She was the only one there alone, a huddled spot not far from the waves. I'd been trying to figure out what I would say to her, but now that I was there, the words fled, and even going up to her seemed like too great a task. So I positioned myself 15 feet behind her and sat down to watch the ocean and my eldest, my only. I wondered if she was crying. The crash of the waves and the rattling palms in the wind made it impossible to tell. I realized, now that I was sitting here, how much I craved the act of doing just this every day, watching her, making sure, shadowing her. I could devote my life to that, I thought, ducking behind columns, wearing wigs and fake mustaches, hiding behind bushes, sitting two rows behind her and her friends in the movie theater. It was a way to not have to live anymore while making sure she stayed alive. An affair with Bernard would have been good for me, I knew. Against all commonly held morals, a fling with him would have been the safer thing at this point, the kinder option. I could feel, strongly, how the three of us, Chris, Leah, and I, were becoming our own solar system, establishing a gravitational pull on one another. Bernard would have drawn me away from that, would have made me feel beautiful, made me want to wash my hair. Over the past few months, flirting with him, I'd been trying to save myself. If things had gone a little differently tonight, if he and I had played things more subtly, if I hadn't sabotaged it by overdoing the flirtation in front of my husband and child, it might have been Bernard and me on this beach, kissing, doing whatever 40-plus-year-old lovers do when they are finally alone, at night, on the sand. It would have been much healthier than this overly protective guardian angel routine. But now that I was in the role, I didn't mind somehow. I felt relieved to be assigned to the task. Thirty minutes later, when Leah rose, I did too. I followed her to the lobby and hid behind a man-sized Buddha head, watched her safely inside the elevator. I saw the buttons light up until it reached our floor. Then I walked slowly back outside. I headed to the pool and lay on a chaise lounge where I could see Bernard and Chris at the bar, having a man-to-man -man talk of all things. At some point, I fell asleep. Later, I was woken by Chris, and I sleepily put a hand to his face as he stroked my shoulder. His cheek was scratchy with a five o'clock shadow, and it was Bernard. He led me with determination back down to the beach. I wondered which of my family members were watching me now, as I'd been watching them. I had an irrational desire to give a wave and suppressed a private giggle. We passed the spot where I'd sat behind Leah and stumbled over boulders to a smaller beach. Then farther, over more boulders, until we got to a beach that was barely bigger than the two of us, and Bernard laid out the pool towel he'd been carrying and produced a mini-fridge bottle of champagne, although at that point I honestly would have preferred straight gin, which I sipped as he removed my dress. And it was for my own survival that I abandoned my family that Christmas Eve, including Sophie, and let his caresses bandage me and allowed his long-imagined touch to let me drift back to myself and to him. 
Afterwards, sitting naked, Indian style on the beach, watching the phosphorescence gleam green on the wave's white froth, I felt fortified. He felt as close as a childhood friend in a treehouse. We walked back silently, barefoot, dodging waves. The tide was coming in. We kissed once more on the beach in front of the hotel before he suggested I go ahead. He wanted to sit outside a bit longer. I was relieved to hear he wouldn't be clingy. That night with Bernard, the desire felt clean. And how do I put this? It ultimately felt like a gift from Sophie, a whisper to come back to life, to stop the endless accusations that I should have been a better mother, should have hugged her more, should have been less strict when she was little. Go for it. I heard her say. Sophie always knew how to have fun, came to her more naturally than it did to Leah or me or even Chris. I'm sure Genevieve, my therapist in Singapore, would have said that all of this was an elaborate ploy to evade Sophie's death. That's why I never breathed a word about Bernard to her or to Chris. The next morning, as he and I wrapped Leah's presents, I told him that I'd stayed out on the beach alone after Leah had come in. He made no further inquiries. Back in Singapore, I slept with Bernard about once a month until we moved back to Madison three years later. Each time, I left feeling like I'd eaten granola or gone to yoga. Weirdly enough, my affair with Bernard also improved sex with Chris. I felt more open, more available. Of course, there were the normal headaches and horrors of cheating, the fear of being found out, the logistics of meeting up, the growing suspicion towards the end that Bernard was a bit of a bore outside the bedroom. But strangely enough, the guilt and shame that have accompanied me nearly all my life at the most minor things, like a surprisingly high grocery bill, never troubled me with the affair, my greatest transgression. I've never been able to explain, not to myself, nor to any therapist since, how sleeping with Bernard saved my marriage, even if he ruined Christmas that first year without Sophie, which was arguably already fucked. Thank you. I'm happy to answer any questions if y'all have any. Um, Are there any sections from the daughter's perspective? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why did you choose not to read those? Just wondering. Uh, I think I felt like these two sections with Chris and Elise um, evolve a lot. It's kind of like a rapidly unspooling plot or something that happens quite quickly in the chapter and the the ones from Leah's perspective um, feel much more internal and um, harder to do in a reading I think but and because it's me kind of so <laughs> um, there that really surprised me there aren't really sections from Sophie's perspective except the last in the last chapter and I didn't see it coming. And then it was just sort of like really, um, like a really clear voice, a really ins kind of like, I mean, as I said, this is a fictionalized book, but um, my, my sister also died when I was 15 and she was 13. And it felt again a little like her voice in my ear, just like pushing, you know? And so that was really shocking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, do Where did you write it? Pardon? Where did you write it? Uh, I wrote the book mostly in Berlin. 
over about two years. Um, and yeah, it. I also had written a memoir before that felt sort of like plodding and sodden and like it, it just wasn't working. And so I put it away and decided to write some to take some of that material and just approach it all over again with fiction, um, as my mother, I'm sure, would really want me to just repeat over and over <laughs> for this crowd. <laughs> uh, yeah. um, but that really freed me up. Like it felt like really suddenly fascinating because it wasn't just like reporting events. It felt like, you know, if. Um, I had remembered my mom really missing my father when he went away. I thought, what would it be like for to have a character who just couldn't wait for the husband to leave? And what would she do? Um, and so I really liked those sort of parallel options. Um, yeah, and it was a lot of fun to do that. And then there was one chapter that I wrote when I was, um, I think, a junior in college that I just sort of put away as a short story and then it sort of neatly inserted itself into the book at the right time. Um, and so in that sense, I guess it took me like 13 years to write this. Yeah. Yeah. So what does your family think about your book? Um, well, they've been very, very kind. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, it was interesting to hear my parents' response to it. Um, my mom said it was like really hard for her for about three days just to sort of think about it or respond. And my dad, um, which I think reflects a lot about my dad, the only thing he said initially was, it was a real page turner. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, which was a great response, you know. <laughs> and later he had more things to say, but um, that, that was the first one. Uh, but yeah, no, I felt very, like my parents didn't ask me to change anything, or I thought that was very generous of them. Did they read it before publication? Or? They did, yeah, they did. Mm-hmm, 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 yeah. Yeah. Anyone else? Going? Going? Thank you. Thank you, guys. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.